those first six months were just probably the lowest point I think anybody in the restaurant industry has ever had in their career. You know, every day was a matter of survival. Welcome to Rethink Moments, the show that explores culturally significant ideas and events that in some way changed how we think and rethinks how these moments changed us. What went right, what went wrong, and what was learned. I'm Rachel Botsman. Before the pandemic, we had just opened up eight restaurants in two years. And I think we had 1,500 to 1,800 employees. And that week the pandemic hit, when that happened, it was an easy decision to shut down our restaurants for safety. David Chang is a cultural rule breaker. He's a famed and celebrated chef, an entertaining Netflix and podcast host, a best-selling author, and the leader of a global business. In April 2020, David, like many other restaurant owners, had to take an enormously difficult decision. Following the World Health Organization's decision to declare the 2019 novel coronavirus a public health emergency of international concern, I have today declared that the coronavirus presents a public health emergency in the United States. The time has now come for us all to do more. You must stay at home. Avoid gathering in groups of more than 10 people and avoid eating and drinking at bars, restaurants, and public food courts. We literally didn't sleep trying to figure out, is this the best decision? Is there any other way? You never prepare yourself. You just try to tell everybody, this is what's happening. We told everyone, this is what we have in the bank account. We had a lot, and now we have almost none. 800 employees from Momofuku Group were laid off and two restaurants were permanently shut down. The pandemic caused me to truly understand that I have no control really over anything. Today on Rethink Moments, how the deep pains of the pandemic have changed what we value and how we measure success. I'm becoming more and more grateful for what's happened because there's no way I could have stopped. The only way it's going to stop is if the world stops and I get and reset everything. What happens when your way of life is under threat? When there's so much momentum happening, you just get carried away. You become that frog in the boiling water that you, you just never even realize that you're boiling to death. And as a leader, how do you find new ways to make a change? Stay with us. I've been reading a lot about you and watching many things that you've done. And the first observation I had, and I really wanted to ask you this question, was when I was reading your book, the voice and the experience of David Chang felt very different to what I hear and see on television. Was that a conscious choice when you were writing the memoir? Well, that's the funny thing is I can't see what that difference might actually be <laughs> for you. What do you think the, the delta is? What's the difference there for you? So it feels like the image of David Chang is very much crafted around pushing against something, rule breaking. And that doesn't come through as a thread in the memoir at all. So I thought it was interesting that sort of the external world and your brand had created this narrative around you but it wasn't a central theme in the story of yourself. Well, I think multiple things can be true. I think 
whoever I have become as a personality or my work, you know, that's not my dominant trait, right? I, I feel if anything, the book sort of explains that whoever I am as a person really started to develop after I opened up the restaurant at the age of 26. And I think between now and then, you know, those 26 years was me just sort of figuring out and floundering and sort of being way more passive than I, I naturally, yes, I am. But after opening that restaurant, I think a lot of these things that may have been dormant in me or not, I, I, that idea to rule break, to try to fix things or to try to shed light on something, it wasn't who I was when I was younger. That's for sure, right? So maybe this is just who I have always been. Do you remember as a child the first rule that you broke? I try not to, you know. You didn't break rules. I really didn't, I, out of fear. You know, I got in trouble, but not because I tried to get in trouble. So the whole aspect or idea that it would be something that people like yourself might see myself as, I don't know. You know, this isn't like a, an id type of situation either. I, I think it was a lot of the rule breaking or the things that I wanted to change and still want to change. I felt there was sort of just a byproduct of, I, I sort of felt like I had no choice. Like it's just something I... I had to do. It wasn't like a conscious decision. It was more like, oh, this is something that's here and I don't like it or I think it can be done better. I, in some ways, I don't see it any different than an entrepreneur with a business problem. But I think it's really interesting that you were saying, you know, as a child, you didn't break rules and you're frightened to break rules. Do you think the concept, the idea of rule breaking has changed for you what that is? If anything, I've, I have a better understanding how stupid, you know, cultural rules are. I think for a lot of the things, me growing up, or the things that I felt were maybe punitive or I felt slighted by were because of cultural understandings that were just wrong. And I can look back on it and be a lot more patient about it, but see that it wasn't necessarily true at that time, right? And, and cultural truths change over time. So I think with that understanding, it gives me more of a license to try to ask why was it that way and why are we continuing to do something a certain way? And I think I've explored that in food quite a bit. It's interesting, though, with um, you talk about entrepreneurs or any kind of creative, you know, when you're breaking the rules or you're pushing against something or rejecting something, you have to understand the rule really well, right? You have to understand the cultural truth that you're disrupting really well. Is that a conscious process? Do you know when you've arrived at that point and it's something that you want to break or is it something you realize, wow, I didn't realize I was doing that? I didn't realize I was doing that. I think you need to have a lot more data under your belt to sort of connect the dots. Because when you're in it, it was just something that was an urge that you have to do, right? But, you know, my initial sort of idea for Momofuku Noodle Bar was really people don't understand how to eat well. It wasn't Asian food. People don't understand how to eat well affordably. It's not just fast food and great food doesn't have to be of the provenance of super high-end fine dining. Because if you travel the rest of the world, people eat really well affordably. I mean, not everywhere, but a lot of places. So it was more of a disconnect. I was like, why is it there? I, I joke, it's like cultural arbitrage, right? The values that I grew up as an Asian American weren't seen as accepting or as cool in American culture. It was always pushed down or seen as cheap or seen as other. But that just wasn't the case. I, I just felt I knew that wasn't true. And the more I was able to travel the world and meet new people and experiences, I realized that there was just a lot more commonality in all of us than not. And there were just sort of cultural obstacles that prevented things from percolating to the top, like 
you know, a lot of food reviews around the world are $25 and under or 25 quid and under or something like that. I'm like, why? If you look at the data of all the restaurants that are in the 25 and under, they're all ethnic restaurants. Why is that? I mean, no one ever asked that question. It's like, you're telling me that the restaurant that serves the best dumplings in your city can only be seen as the best cheap eat, you know, when that doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. And having a deeper understanding of what that constraint means is, you know, it's not inherently racist, but it's more like you're just being ignorant, I think, to the things that are out there that could actually be great and telling an audience of what is delicious. So I, I just sort of connected those dots more on more. But that's super interesting, David. I mean, like, why isn't it so? Why couldn't it be like this? Like, this process of discovering these constraints, maybe they're not rules that you're trying to break, but these constraints, these barriers, do you consciously go about that? Or do you sort of have a hunch and then start to build a picture of it and then solve it in a different way? It's more of a hunch. And I think what gave me a better understanding of this, of all things, was actually studying more of modern art. Because <laughs> I didn't understand it, right? It, it sort of dovetailed into me having a better idea of what food could potentially be. And not just food as a platform, but culture as a platform and how you express yourself. And, you know, I don't usually think about this or talk about this because you can sound like a real asshole for, for, for like talking these things out loud. But I, I, I just wanted to understand how you could do something different. It's not just art. If you think about music, literature, anything in culture spread out over time, what were the moments that changed it, that shifted people's perceptions and understandings of what is normal and what is acceptable? And I think the more I sort of looked at that and these moments, it was mostly something that not necessarily counterintuitive, not necessarily something that was like a dialectic or something like that. It was just something like, why was something underground and not mainstream, right? What was keeping that down? Once I saw that, I was like, okay, how I think about food became less of an idea and more of a methodology about how I want to pursue something. Original and exciting ideas often take off because creatives, designers or inventors find a way to rethink something that already feels familiar to us. At the same time, ideas can flop because they don't feel familiar enough. They're asking us to take a trust leap that's too big. It's all about finding an optimal space between novelty and familiarity, so just the right amount of trust is required. I'll come up with an idea, I'll think about something that most people aren't doing and ask myself, why is this not happening? Like, I love data, I love collecting data, and I test out hypotheses all the time. And I just randomly, like, I ask you, uh, Rachel, do you think a buffet could be the best restaurant in the world? Potentially a breakfast buffet. I'm a real fan of the <laughs> breakfast buffet, but my, my association and connotations of buffets are not good, Exa to be honest. Exactly. But why is it not good? Too many corporate events where it's in those silver trays, it's volume, right? The volume really freaks me out. Like everything's been sitting there for a long time, mass cooked, creamy, heavy. It's something about the size of everything that right. really bothers me. And it doesn't feel communal, which I think is really interesting, right? It feels like everyone going up and like dipping in and then adding the bad roll on at the end. That's my association with the buffet. See, I love this. Everything you just said would be like, okay, I'm definitely going to do some homework here because first of all, you're talking about a way of eating that almost everybody understands, but everybody associates in a negative way. I love that. 
And it's like, okay, what are the reasons why people associate? Then you go to deep dive and you start collecting data. I'm like, okay, these are the reasons why. Is, is it a variable that like can't change? The answer is like, no, everything you just said can be addressed. And then you sort of reverse engineer and be like, okay, what kind of experience would someone have to have to go to dinner at a buffet? So sit down with your friends or your own text thread and you say, hey, let's go to this restaurant X tonight. And they're like, what is it? It's a buffet. And like, trust me, it's going to change your life. What kind of restaurant that served buffet food would be able to do that? And that's how you would just sort of fill in the blanks from there. And I love that because you're changing somebody's understanding of something and breaking it in a way that they've never thought was possible. That's worth screwing around with, at the very least, exploring. And what I ask myself and my team is, is it a bad idea because somebody just said it was a bad thing? Somebody said, I hate it because it smells bad. And maybe that person that said it was a prominence of note and they thought it smelled bad because there was somebody that was a different skin color than them that was serving the food and then whatever. There was some kind of prejudice they had. Who knows? There's a bunch of dumb reasons in culture through history that we've derived to be true when it actually was derived because somebody was dumb and ignorant. So maybe that's one reason or the alternative is actually the cultural sort of misunderstanding of buffets has been so prominent and so huge. It's prevented anybody from actually testing out anything. And that's what I would do. It's like, I want to collect the data myself to see, is it actually a bad idea? Like with science and reason, or is it a bad idea because somebody said it was a bad idea? That's the difference. And that's what I like to do. I totally understand it now. I mean, I never knew I had such strong feelings about buffets. I realized I could have gone on and on about the buffets, but um, I understand now what you're talking about with the constraints. It's like when someone's emotions or associations or memories are boxed in by some kind of rule or convention. And then you can go in and say, okay, if we move that line, if we break this rule, or if we do something, how can we create a paradigm shift in how people connect to that idea? It's interesting you talk about art. So I started as an artist, long story, I used to make installation art. And I was always really fascinated by this tension between the familiar and the unknown. So this idea of strangely familiar and how it could be really magnetic. You were speaking about modern art. Is there an example that you sort of come back to where they broke the rules and they created this paradigm shift that's had a real influence on the way that you think? You know, it, it's a whole series of artists that I sort of dismissed because I didn't think they were like the Renaissance masters. And again, that was it. It was, what my, it was a lot like listening to say like, you know, what's a good album? Like Kid A by Radiohead, right? That album I was like, oh, that's different. I don't like it. And now I love it. Why is that? Because it challenged my notions of what music could be. The first time I listened to like Wu-Tang Clan, I'm like, that's not hip hop. That's not, but that's what it was, right? And when I was sort of conditioned to look at art or hear music or anything cultural in a specific way, and then you see something that challenges it. So for a long time, I thought something like, Rothko or Duchamp or like Warhol, for example, it was like garbage, Basquiat, garbage. Now I'm like, oh, I don't know if I get it, but I get it way more than I did before, right? And just the simple idea of literally a urinal could be art. I was like, well, then anything could be food. Like the idea that Warhol was like the first person like to color with pink as a, as a color. I was like, that seems pretty stupid. But when you think about it in context, you're like, oh shit, you know? So for me, it was just a shift in understanding what food could be. What kind of restaurant could you own? What kind of restaurant could you serve? It became more of like the first few years of Momofuku were really an experiment of what is actually necessary in a restaurant. 
right? And we, st- we stripped away everything. Stay with us. We'll be right back. So when you bring your equivalent of Duchamp's pink urinal into the world, where the world either goes, that's genius, or often, you know, at the time, it reacts to the environment in which it's born, and everyone says, that's a bad idea. Do you think about that response? And if the response is rejection, initial rejection, because it is strangely familiar, how do you work through that? See, I, I work through that in a different way. I, I have friends that are really at the cutting edge of food or have been. Like Heston Blumenthal, he's a different example because he, you know, I, I view him and Farhan Adria as like the, the fathers of modern gastronomy, right? If Farhan Adria is the Picasso, then Blumenthal's like the, how do you pronounce his last name? George Brock's, Brock? You know, uh, like they're like the two guys that figured out how to do it. Heston was a more commercial than Ferran, even though Ferran sells more sh- stuff, right? Like, so can I ask David, who is Jamie Oliver? Just before you go on, Jamie Oliver is the most commercial artist. Like, that's the thing is, for when, if I was younger, I would have made fun of Jamie Oliver, and I did make fun of Jamie Oliver. But now, if anything, it's the same thing my friends make fun of me. One of my great friends, Wiley Dufresne, who's one of the best chefs in the world, and he's always like, Dave, you're just a populist. And that's a backhanded way of him saying, like, I just want to make many people happy. And I'm like, what's, what's wrong with that? What Jamie Oliver does or anybody that does commercial stuff, it's really hard. It's extremely hard to do. And I'm not in a position anymore to say, like, that's good or bad. And it's just more like, what is the reach somebody has? And you know, the different way for me to think about this or how I turn to internalize it less about Jamie Oliver is if I think about food reality competition shows, you know, the, the, the low hanging fruit cooking shows. I now I'm very appreciative of them, even though they're garbage, even though they, for the most part are just bad. I, I can't, you know, I, 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 I don't hate them. I now I'm like, I'm grateful in a lot of different ways because they're introducing an audience to food that may not have cared about food before. So I now have to look at this as just one part of that viewer's journey. There's no guarantee that this viewer who didn't care about food before will actually have a a growing responsibility towards cuisine and gastronomy, but it's a start, right? Just like how I grew up eating Domino's pizza growing up, thinking it was the best pizza in the world. For me to say that person is, is a Philistine barbarian that knows nothing about cuisine, that's the problem, right? And I think saying something sucks or saying something's bad, I'm trying my best to like curb that default setting because if anything, it's like Jamie's touched a lot of people. He's touched a hell of a lot more people than he's offended. So like, why do you hate him? Because he's been successful. But like in general, I think in food, by not embracing commercialism, a lot of chefs have painted themselves into a corner. No pun intended. I don't hate Jamie by any means. And that wasn't, uh, I wasn't asking you that question. No, 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 no. I know, I know. I, I sense that there has been this shift in your default setting, as you put it, to reframe things, not reject things because they are highly commercial or highly successful. Is that change of thinking, the way you think about paradigms, the way you think about what people have brought into the world, is that a recent thing? No, actually. And this has been many, many, many sessions with my therapists over the years about understanding this. It is less to do about me accepting that sort of mass appeal and more shifting it towards the fact that is simply one of the most difficult things you can do. And I will always gravitate towards one of the most difficult you know, I'm always after the most difficult thing for the most part. You and, are. And doing something at mass, yes. <laughs> that That's like a commonality for me. Is, is like, I will always take the road that is going to be the most punishing. Difficult because 
it's hard, difficult because it's expensive, difficult because no one's done it before, difficult because it's physical. Yeah, I'm extremely attracted to doing something that no one else is doing, right? Not like rowing a boat across the Atlantic, right? Because <laughs> if I wanted to just do one restaurant and, and try to get the highest ranking in the world and try to get three Michelin stars, it sounds asinine and totally conceited to say this, I think I could do it. You know, some of my best friends are doing that and I, I don't diminish it. There's nothing easy about that at all. It's, I'm so happy that they can be fulfilled doing that. All I'm saying is it doesn't fulfill me anymore to just do that. It, it, it's, just, it's just harder to do something like, you know, if it's like a film, I don't want to, like, I love David Lynch, but I don't want to make David Lynch films. <laughs> you know, I want to make Steven Spielberg movies, right? I'm very much attracted to trying to make a film that, everybody likes as many people as possible. And I want that in a dish as well. You know, how do you make something that, you know, you're never gonna get 99%, but how do you get over 85% of the people that taste it to, to overwhelmingly love it? That's a challenge that I just, I love. But it's so interesting you say this because it seems like there's this tension in your work and your goals and the, the food that you create around scale. So you've built an empire, but most of your restaurants were quite small and intimate in their experience. Is that something you're aware of, that you want to do things that are really big, but there's like a smallness in the bigness in the work that you create? You know, you just sort of learn how the restaurant business works. And I think a prominent restaurateur told me, Dave, you know that restaurant you just built that has 50 seats, you could have 250 seats with the same size kitchen because your kitchen is huge and you only serve like 40 people. What's your problem? I think for me, the reason why I wanted to do that was to control quality, right? But it's a specific food that you make for those 40, 50 people doing two turns a night. To do anything larger, it's not that I was opposed to it. It was more, again, a shift. It was like, okay, we've climbed these mountains. We know these routes really well. Let's climb it a different way now. Let's, let's up the challenge a little bit and doing large format, large scale, high volume seat restaurants is a completely different sport. So we are shifting a little bit more to that, but we're shifting to all kinds of models now in a, you know, a little bit of a post-pandemic world. You know, one reason I opened up Toronto was people were like, you can't do a big, big restaurant. I was like, oh, I'll show you. I'll show, a lot of it is like, I'll show you, you know, to my imaginary critics. And we opened up like a three floor restaurant with five concepts in it. It was, you know, a nightmare to, to pull off, but we did it. And we did it really well. So I, I think I'm less obsessed with trying to prove that kind of point and more trying to build something that's sustainable and less about my own ego. I mean, that's really it. And the small restaurants are really about feeding my ego. <laughs> and I think now it's a, it's a lot less so. It was Michelangelo who said, what you get by achieving your goals is not as important as what you become by achieving your goals. It's a quote I love because it challenges how we truly value success in our lives. Short-term goals lead us to focus on what we want to do rather than what kind of person we want to be. Whereas far out goals can be incredibly liberating. They allow us to think about an integral piece of ourselves that is not fully expressed. I, I used to be willing to sacrifice everything, life, body, and limb. And now I realize just how ephemeral those things are. And, you know, it's not that what's the point. I do think that these goals are young person's goals. You know, they're just young enough to think that you can do them and just dumb enough to not know that 
you can't do anything else, right? This is perfect tension on that. And I think that if I was more mature at a younger age, if I had a family, if I was basically more well-adjusted as a younger person, I probably wouldn't have attempted any of those things. Because now I'm turning 45 this year. I, I, I just, you know, that's what I think wisdom does. The accumulation of wisdom isn't necessarily that I'm getting smarter with more knowledge. I just think the pain hurts more. And, and that's one of the reasons I don't do it. It just hurts so much to, to, to throw yourself at these projects because now you realize, oh, wait, it's not just me that's throwing myself at these projects. It's everybody else around me. And maybe they don't want to, they don't care about this as much as I do. That one's a hard one to swallow, right? When you're like, why don't you care as much as I do? And I, I am interested in whether it's midlife goals changing or whether around this age, because we are actually really close in age, whether just the definition of success goes through, yeah. you know, what we call a midlife crisis is actually a, a complete reframe of what we think of as success or being successful. I mean, so many friends feel like they're going through this journey. Do you think your idea of success and being successful has changed? I'm not pausing because I have to think about it. I'm pausing because I'm, I'm like really trying to soak in how much it's changed. My idea of success has changed so much over the years and it, and it evolves. Sometimes it goes back to older goals. It was... I have to survive financially. I have to then get large enough where we can get healthcare for everybody. You know, these goals where they could be accolade driven, whatever they are, I've realized that they're not necessarily aligned, right? For me, what I think my goals are, I have to really step back and think, are they good for me? And do I think that my goals are also good for the team around me? Because more often than not, what I think is good for me is definitely not good for my team or the people around me. So I try to find that overlap where it's good for everybody. And, and that's sort of how I pursue it. And I was just at one of my restaurants because I've stepped away from day-to-day -day cooking. And every restaurant's had a hard time recalibrating. And, um, you know, one of my team was like, hey, when you go there to eat, just, just know that they've been working extremely hard and, and it may not be up to your standards. And I went in and there were a lot of things wrong. And I definitely got irritated at dinner, but I didn't say anything. And I, I tried to be as kind and respectful to everybody as possible. And I think an older version of me would have probably left mid-dinner and said, like, what are we doing here? How come you're doing this? And then after dinner, I probably would have stayed and, like, worked with them and then not left for, like, two weeks until we addressed everything. And that may have solved it temporarily, but I think in the long term, I would have, you know, burned a lot of bridges with the people that worked there, created a lot of distrust. So instead, I waited the weekend, let my, like, you know, thoughts get a little bit more organized, and I had a... A meeting with everybody online and and like the three other people that are upper management and i told them like hey you guys are here every day i am not these are my thoughts you can take them or disagree with them but i'm just giving you from my perspective what i think we should be doing i would never have said those things before and i also know that i said if you guys want me there i'm happy to change my schedule and spend you know a few days and working with the team and it, it just reached a point where um i was really happy even though it was an immediate change, we didn't address it immediately. I know that it's going to be because it's a different organization. It's a different team and it's a different time and era. So for me, I have to be willing to accept that I may not get the instant result that I wanted, but I now know that after years of trying to get that instant gratification, getting that instant gratification oftentimes makes a mess down the road. It's like no different than, so I joke sometimes with uh, people I work with, it's like uh, when you do something like this, it's like one of those Marvel movies where you go back in time and you change the, you know, you change something in present day and it screws up 
the future moving forward. And that's what it feels like. By not interfering, I'm letting the DNA like do its thing, right? It's going to just be on a better course without my interjection. So if anything, it's just, again, reducing what I think is right and wrong and just letting it happen. And that's hard. It's hard to be passive. David's talking about the benefits that can come from slowing down our lives and taking more time over decision-making. It's been a big realization for him, for me, and many of us over the past two years. Slowing down allows us to think in unstructured and unconventional ways. It enables us to be less reactive and more proactive, and it allows us to sit in the unknown. You know, for me, the pandemic has negatively impacted so many people and so many people lost lives, uh, you know, including myself, you know, to, to loved ones. So I don't say this lightly, and I hope that people hear this, they, they take it with a, you know, a specific mindset is, as much as the pandemic has been terrible for so many people, and including myself, I'm becoming more and more grateful for what's happened because there's no way I could have stopped. You know, I remember years and years and years, I would tell my psychiatrist, I just need things to stop. And the only way it's gonna stop is if the world stops and I get and reset everything. Because for those that understand, when there's so much momentum happening, you just need to stop, but you can't. And you just get carried away you become that frog in the boiling water that you, you just never even realize that you're you're boiling to death and that's what it felt like and as terrible as it was the world stopped and i was able to stop myself and it negatively impacted not just my business but my entire industry and at the same time i was able to be present and be a dad and be a husband and be a, a friend and be all of these things that i had to take and put in the back burner for so many years. And, um, you know, for me, I, I realized that the pandemic caused me to truly understand that I have no control really over anything and just sort of surrendering to that idea that I have control. This idea of control is sort of ludicrous. So that's been my whole takeaway over two and a half years is to learn to be more grateful of the things that I have. If I lost every cent, if I lost everything, you know, you meditate on these worst case scenarios, it's like, it's still not that bad. No, it's interesting because I think where many people are now struggling is that they've sort of, they know what they want to give up and they've rethought what they're trying to achieve, but they haven't quite arrived at what replaces that. Like there's a massive vacuum and that's why we're seeing, you know, people, millions leaving their jobs in droves and going traveling and giving up their lifestyles. Did you think differently about what you were trying to achieve? Has it made you think differently about what you're trying to achieve? You know, I can't speak on behalf of our, our entire team at Momofuku, right? But I think that what we want to achieve as a restaurant is something that's way more sustainable from a restaurant group, right? From a media angle, it's using our platform to continue to try to tell stories that we haven't told before or haven't had the opportunity to be told. But I think from a personal perspective, I've just had the time to even know that I have a personal perspective now on things, right? So it's, it's just a reorganization of what I, I think are my priorities. And I don't think anything is gone. It's just more my personal life, like everybody else's, is more prominent now. You know, it's, it's a constant reminder that this idea of balance, even though I think pre-pandemic, the idea of work-life balance was much like talking about the environment. You know, I'm environmentally conscious, but talking about it versus doing are very different things. And I think everyone talked about work-life balance, but now in a post-pandemic world, 
we have to really put work into making that happen. This is all a positive to start to ask questions of the things that, you know, much like we we're talking about with how I think about food, the, the things that are seen as like true, maybe they're not true. For David, the privilege of time and work-life balance was only possible after some incredibly tough decision-making to protect the future of his business. Like many leaders across different industries, the only way to navigate uncertainty was to accept that there was no right or wrong answer. What's the hardest part was, you know, my initial reaction was like to defend and myself and the team is, the pandemic doesn't happen, this isn't happening. You know, it was so hard to swallow that, wait a second, this isn't our doing. But then I was like, everybody feels that way. Uh, Those first six months were just probably the lowest point I think anybody in the restaurant industry has ever had in their career. You know, every day was a matter of survival. It really was. And I think the world over, especially in America, we were left to rot. And I, I know a lot of my friends that I spoke to, like some of the biggest restaurant and chefs in the country we're all fearful, like, how are we going to do this? You know, everyone was already in debt, already fully levered, which is what was most scary because they're like, I'm going to lose my home. You know, I'm, it was terrifying. You know, the hardest thing was understanding that no matter what decision we made, and I know a lot of people in the world felt this way, but specifically in the restaurant industry, whatever decision we were going to do, we were going to be seen as making a bad decision. And I remember talking about this and saying to ourselves that people may see this as a mistake now. There's no way you can explain all the angles. You just can't. There's just too many perspectives. But given time, that responsibility is on us to prove to everybody that this was the best decision that we could make at the time. And we just don't know. You just can't tell. But you have to make the best decision that you can and that's what we did. Like, we, we, if we look back on it and there were other ways we could make this decision, I'm not going to hold us accountable. Like, we should have, could have, would have. Yeah. We, we literally didn't sleep trying to figure out, is this the best decision? Is there any other way? And I'm not happy about it, but I'm happy and proud of the fact that we did everything that we could. Going back to where we started, that you like to do difficult things and you like to break constraints and and challenge the way things are done. What is the paradigm shift you're trying to create around the restaurant industry now that wouldn't have been possible without the pandemic? I think for us, we're trying to explore ways that restaurants can be profitable and the people that work in restaurants can make more money than they ever could before. If people want things better in restaurants, we're going to have to change the model. What I think we need to be doing is being open to all these things because I think one thing that happened in the restaurant industry is Everybody was wildly underprepared for this pandemic, but the restaurant industry could have been better prepared had we had more tools at our disposal. And that's all I want for us to do is to continue to explore what these new tools might be to help everybody out. So now I I understand from talking with you, David, why the cover of your book is someone pushing a peach uphill. And I'm wondering if there's ever a future version of David, who's a little boy running down chasing a balloon. <laughs> you know, I, I, I hope so, I really do. And, and hopefully, you know, it's, it's something that I learn from and people learn from as well, because I've made every stupid decision possible, especially, but you never know, I, I'm open to anything. That's the one thing I know is, I'm less rigid about anything I thought was not possible, you know, or I'm never going to change to this. So anything and everything is on the table. 
A big thanks to David for that absolutely fascinating conversation. It made me want to spend more time thinking about what success really means and how we know when we've got there. I absolutely love David's memoir called Eat a Peach. I'd recommend it. It's an incredibly warm and open window into his life. And if you enjoyed this episode of Rethink Moments, please do leave a rating on Apple and a review. It really helps other listeners find the show. If you have questions, ideas or feedback for me, the best way to connect is on LinkedIn. I'm at Rachel Botsman and also on Twitter and Instagram, also at Rachel Botsman. Thanks for listening and I'll speak to you soon on the next episode of Rethink Moments. Rethink Moments is truly a collective effort. The show is developed and written by me, Rachel Botsman, with Will Hain and Alex Sansom. Our Rethink Moments team includes our wonderful producers, Kat Davy and Carenza Metric, and Phoebe Adler-Ryan, our researcher. Editing, mixing, and additional scripting is by our friends at Rethink Audio, Matt Hill and Anushka Tate. Sound engineering by Nick Morbath at Evolution Studios, and our original theme music is composed by Ben Sansom. And thanks to Jesse Hempel and the team at LinkedIn for all their support. <laughs>